Welcome to episode four of the Animal Welfare Junction. I'm your host, Dr. G, and our music is written and produced by Mike Sullivan. So on this episode, we are going to be talking about a very touchy subject, and that is behavioral euthanasia. Behavioral euthanasia refers to putting an animal to sleep due to unwanted behavior or a behavioral problem. These animals could potentially be physically healthy, but they're not mentally sound. And depending on the behavior, we start going into the concept of convenience euthanasia. And what that indicates is that an animal is being put to sleep because the owner doesn't want to mess with it or work with correcting the problem. So an example of that would be a cat that pees outside of the box or a dog that chews everything. And I personally do not agree with convenience euthanasia because when we take the responsibility of owning a pet, we have to understand there's sometimes our problems along the way that need addressed. And that's a topic for another podcast because today we're discussing behavioral euthanasia because of aggression. And that is when a dog exhibits behaviors that are a threat to humans and or animals. And I say dog because we rarely see cats in homes being euthanized for aggression. So today we're gonna be concentrating on dogs. So what do I think about behavioral euthanasia? Well, this is not a simple black and white subject. To me, it's a grayscale that has a lot of variables. And that includes the size of the dog, because that determines the amount of damage that can cause. We have the triggers, which are the causes of the behavior, and the ability of the owner or the caretaker to manage that behavior, because not every person can take on an aggressive dog, be it due to resources, the family setting. And in some cases, we see people that have the resources, that have the experience, the education, and they're still unable to control the behavior. Now, People that oppose behavioral euthanasia can get really nasty. I was talking with my technician, Laura, recently, and she shared a story of a lady that got an adult dog, and this dog was supposed to be good with children and other dogs, and the person that gave her the dog said if it didn't work out, she would take the dog back. Well, she takes this dog home, and it's not good with kids or dogs. So the dog attacked her dog, grabbed it by the neck, and then went after one of her kids. So the lady tried to return the dog, and of course she was ghosted. So this dog initially came from a shelter, and that shelter told her that they didn't have the space to take the dog back for at least two weeks. So they would take the dog, but she had to house it for two weeks. And she had a concern for her kids and dog safety, so she was not comfortable with having this dog in her house for that time. So she went to an online community page to seek for help with placing this dog for two weeks or maybe find a permanent home with no children, because she did say that the dog was very playful and very friendly with adults. And at some point, she made a comment that if she could not find placement, that she would have considered behavioral euthanasia. Well, as you can imagine, results were bashing and trashing. There were 99 total comments, and only a handful of them were sympathetic. And basically, it's her fault for failing this dog, who lets make a note that this dog has had at least four homes based on known history because we have to think about the dog had a home then it went to the shelter then it went to this other lady's house who then passed it on to this current person so we have at least four places so people are just passing the problem along and in the meantime they're risking animals and humans now of course all of these people that have all the opinions in the world none of them offer to take the dog for the two weeks or work with it or house it because it's just really easy to throw shame at others behind the safety of a keyboard. But so many people who advocate for aggressive dogs have never worked with one or would not take on the responsibility. So we don't know how this story actually ended and we hope that everybody is okay, but this is not uncommon. And some of these animals end up in shelters or rescues who then have to manage them and they're the ones faced with making the difficult decisions. I suppose the question is, can we realistically help every dog? Are there resources available to everybody? And can anyone manage an aggressive dog? So to discuss this subject, I have invited three guests. I have Jen Thomas from the Ross County Humane Society, Missy Houghton, who is the Richland County Dog Warden, and Amanda Wampler, who is a foster and dog owner. And they've all had to make these difficult decisions and will be sharing their opinions and how this affects them. Our first guest today is Jen Thomas, the Executive Director of the Ross County Humane Society. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. What is your opinion about being able to help every animal that is presented to the shelter? 
wanting to save everything and being able to responsibly and safely save everything are not the same thing. So I think that saying save them all is really doing a disservice to the animals that are in shelters specifically that don't have behavioral issues that are getting overlooked because we're spending so much time and resources on the ones that maybe we should humanely say goodbye to. So do you think that the people that do spend a lot of time and keep rescuing dogs that are aggressive, like behaviorally having problems and keep them and do not give them the opportunity to improve, right? Warehousing. What's your idea behind that? I mean, that's, that's no different than a hoarder that you would, you know, go to their house and they have 83 cats that aren't cared for. It's the same mentality. I say all the time, like, keeping something alive and letting it live or be alive are not the same thing. What would you say is the, is the problem behind, like, why can't we help more animals that have behavioral issues just from a logistics standpoint? I mean, there's numerous reasons for me as somebody who runs a shelter, it's a safety issue for my staff. You know, I need them to be able to feel safe, relatively safe, considering what we do. And it clogs up the system. You know, there's people want, most people want a pet, not a project. And I say that with the utmost respect to the people that do take on those problem dogs or the dogs that have behavioral issues. But, you know, the average adopter that we are at least seeing are, they're not equipped to deal with, you know, dog on dog aggression or, you know, biting. I don't think that dogs that are biting people are safe to adopt out. You know, it creates all kinds of problems. It creates a legality problem and a liability problem, you know, for organizations who, you know, run on donations most of the time anyway, to be expending that much time and resources into a dog that has numerous bite histories or is, you know, dog aggressive or, you know, kills cats, you know, it creates a big problem for us in shelter as far as space and safety and just logistics of what do we do if we're holding those dogs um, with the dogs that are coming in that we don't have a choice to take and don't have space because we're warehousing, which we don't do that. But, you know, the dogs that are marginal or borderline dogs. Do you see a lot of people that are surrendering their dogs because of behavioral issues? We get so many calls about people who, and some of them are, you know, easy behavioral issues. Like, you know, they don't understand, like sometimes dogs will scuffle with each other. That doesn't mean that they're dog aggressive. It just means that maybe you have some things you need to work on. But a lot of the times we get calls almost every single day of my dog bit me and my dog bit my child, my dog bit my neighbor. Can you take it and find it a home? And, you know, we ask them respectfully, like, you know, if you're scared of your dog and your dog is biting your children or is your safety and your child's safety more important than someone else's child's safety? Have you done anything to try to figure out why this dog is biting? Is it not getting enough mental stimulation? Is it not getting enough physical stimulation? Is it just not the right fit for your family or is the dog just biting? So we get tons of calls that behavior is probably the number one reason why people want to surrender their dogs to us and probably 75% of those are because the dog has bitten someone either in the household or in the neighborhood. Do you think that some of these people are bringing them like surrendering the dogs because they don't want to be responsible for what happens or for the euthanasia themselves? A lot. I don't know that a lot of people, I don't think about the responsibility portion of it because we do also, we're very transparent with people. We're very upfront and in a compassionate way about like why it's not safe. But I think that a lot of times people just their heart just can't handle the fact of that they don't want to euthanize the dog. They want there to be some magical solution, which they think is an animal shelter, which most of your listeners probably have been inside of an animal shelter. It's full of strangers. It's full of barking dogs. It's full of new smells. And if your dog is not comfortable in your own house, that is biting you, it's definitely not going to be comfortable with us. And we explain that to people like, you know, it's a kinder compassion for you to be with your dog to say goodbye than to bring it here to and take the chance that one of us is going to get hurt, first of all. And second of all, the mental stress and anguish that you're going to put on your dog is it's not fair to the dog. Now, one of the things that we have noticed in like some of the bigger shelters and pounds 
is that some of those dogs react differently when they're in the shelter and we're in that situation as opposed to when they're outside. Do you see that with some of the dogs that have behavioral issues that come into you? For sure. And we tell, and I say this all the time, we do the best with what we have. And, you know, your dog might be great in your home and it might be absolutely terrible at the shelter. If you've chosen to bring your dog to us and it begins biting us, like, that that's just part of it. When people bring their pets in to meet other dogs that we have for adoption, you can see, you can tell there's a difference. The owners are like, wow, my dog has never acted like this. I'm like, well, it's in a new place. It doesn't know us. There's a lot of sounds and noises and things. And so, yeah, a lot of times dogs do react differently in the shelter environment than they do in a home or outside of a shelter environment. So what do you think the public in general can do better to decrease the need for surrenders, like the behavior problems that we are seeing? And have you seen an increase in behavior problems compared to previous years? For sure. This year has been especially bad for us for behavioral problems and behavioral euthanasias, if I'm going to be completely transparent. And I'm not sure if that's because there have been more of them or if it's because our assessment of what's adoptable has kind of honed in a little bit because we, you know, I don't want to be the person that gets a phone call that a dog we adopted out bit a child's ear off or things like that. I think that one of the big problems that we have as far as behavioral surrenders is that there are no resources for affordable dog training, like comprehensive dog training. And I'm not talking about teaching your dog to sit or teaching your dog to stay. I'm talking about how to redirect and handle and manage those behavioral issues. And, you know, the dog trainers that I know are booked out six, seven, eight months. And if you have a dog that's biting and you feel like you don't have any reasonable resources to try to manage those, like you, you either you bring the dog to the shelter or you euthanize it. You know, that's a whole nother issue about affordable behavior management techniques that the public just doesn't know about or doesn't have access to. And I guess last thing is, as far as the animals that you're seeing brought in for behavioral issues, do you know if the majority of them are intact or sterilized? Does it make, does it seem to make a difference? Almost every dog that we get is intact. I would say probably 95% of them, when we get a dog in that's sterilized as a stray, like we automatically know this came from another shelter or this probably came from a rescue. That's not always the case, but 90% of the time the dog ends up being chipped and it came from a rescue or another shelter. So yeah, I think that when you have multiple dogs in a home and none of them are sterilized and you have males and females mixed and you dogs go into heat, you're going to have issues amongst the dogs. That's just, I mean, that's just nature. And, you know, a lot of times people are like, well, my dog is starting to fight with my other dog or my female dog is fighting. When the first thing we ask, is your dog in heat or is your dog intact? Is it neutered? And almost every time the answer is no. And we're like, you know, your first step might be get them sterilized and see if the removal of those hormones and that drive will help you retain your pets. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes they don't want to do that because they want to make more puppies. Any final thoughts that you want to share on the need for behavioral euthanasia? I think that behavioral euthanasia needs to be destigmatized. While it sounds great, we don't even use the terminology no kill anymore. By standards, we are a no kill shelter, but it gives a false sense of hope that every single dog can be saved. And it's just not possible to do it safely. And, you know, those people that are bearing the brunt of the anger of people or us, the shelter workers who are there day in and day out. I think that we generally have the best in mind for you and your family and your safety. We love animals. We love dogs. Sometimes we love them more than people, but adopting out a dog that's not safe or is, you know, going to harm your child or a dog that we know is very likely going to, if it gets loose, attack your neighbor's dog is not safe. I don't want my neighbor's dog to get loose and attack my dog. And I'm, I have two dogs that don't like each other. So we, we have to manage those things and our management has failed and we've had accidents. And I know that with as educated and as patient and as knowledgeable as I am, I, I don't expect that an average person is going to be able to manage two dogs that have dog aggression. I think that there are far worse things than euthanasia and I've seen them and it's people getting bitten, children's, you know, lungs being punctured and things like that. So, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing for the dogs, for the safety, for 
everybody's, you know, mental well-being. I think if we could just destigmatize it a little bit. I think another big problem with why people don't like behavioral euthanasia or they think they don't like behavioral euthanasia is because the shelters and the rescues and the people that are doing it are not vocal enough to give people the comfort to know that the decisions that they're making are sound. Meaning, you know, we're not just doing this on a whim, like we're doing it with compassion, we're doing it with knowledge. And I think that because everybody's scared to talk about it, you know, people just, they don't know what goes on behind closed doors. They don't know the things that we deal with. And a lot of times they don't know us and they just think we're these mean, heartless people. And we're really not like we're doing it with an education and with knowledge of, we want to adopt out safe animals. And so I think the, I know that a lot of people don't like that I talk about it or that I am vocal about it because they're afraid they'll lose support or donations. And we do run on donations, but I think the more that if more shelters would talk about it openly, I think that the public, at least the reasonable public, would understand why it's done instead of it just being this taboo thing that we don't talk about. Right. Yeah. Thinking about the no-kill concept as far as a shelter, a lot of people do not understand that no-kill doesn't mean no euthanasia. It means no euthanasia of healthy, adoptable pets. So animals that are untreatable or have serious problems, whether it be behavioral health, they are euthanized and they don't count towards that no-kill number. So that is something really important that people need to know. Yeah. I think also educating them on what adoptable means versus unadoptable is also like, you know, it's one of those spots. It's just like not having access to affordable vet care. It's one of those things people just don't understand, like, because it's everybody's so scared to talk about it. They don't understand why it's done or how it's done or how those decisions are made, you know, just being vocal about it. I think in most instances, you know, I've had some people that just really don't like me because of that opinion. But again, I've seen what can happen when we adopt out unknowingly dogs that are not safe and people get hurt. And, you know, we're the one that has to live with that. And our jobs are already emotionally taxing as it is to then have to worry about, I, I just, I don't know how, people rescues pull dogs with multiple bite histories or serious dog aggression and like are able to like like how are they not having anxiety or some kind of you know culpability and what happens when those dogs bite someone or kill someone's pet so I could talk about this for like ever in a day because I'm pretty passionate about it and it's not because I like to euthanize things I definitely don't it's because I want there to be more safe pets that are adopted out and during teaching people what's adoptable and what's not adoptable. It goes back to kind of what we talked to earlier about in educating people when they call my dog bit me, can you adopt it out? You know, that we have to educate them and say, this is why we can't. And this is why you also probably shouldn't rehome the dog because we don't want somebody else's child to get hurt. Well, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts on this. Thank you. Our next guest is Missy Houghton, and she is the dog warden for Richland County. So thank you for being here today. Thanks for having Um, me. So the first question that I'm asking all our guests is, what are your thoughts on the concept of being able to save every animal that comes into the shelter? In theory, I think that that came from a good place, but I don't think that it is realistic, unfortunately, just because there are... I deal with strictly dogs where I work. So there are dogs that I encounter that are safe for anybody to own. There are dogs that are safe for some people to own. There are dogs that could be managed by some people. And then there are dogs that are not safe for anyone to own. So I don't think that you can actually save all of them and have them all be safe for society. and humane for the animals as well. If you want to save them all, then you're looking at the concept of warehousing animals. And at that point, are you looking at saving them to make you feel better? Or are you looking at them for the aspect of what is the quality of life for that animal? Yeah, because that's a really big point with places that, as you mentioned, warehouse, is that these dogs do not have a quality of life. They're alive, but they're not living. So what does it actually mean to be a no-kill shelter facility? So a no-kill shelter facility means that you have a 90% live release rate. 
so that 90% of the animals that come into your facility leave your facility alive and that you don't euthanize healthy, adoptable animals. You only euthanize sick, untreatable, or behaviorally unsound animals. So of that 10%, can that 10% be healthy animals that are being euthanized, or is that 10% only untreatable animals? Well, if they're behaviorally unsound, then they could still physically be healthy, but not mentally be healthy. The dog shelter has come a really long way. When we started Rascal 16 years ago, we met with the then warden, and everybody was very against the concept of spay-neuter and doing mm -hmm. things to the point of it wasn't even a conversation they wanted to have. And now things have changed. So how long have you been there and how, how have things changed since you started working at the dog shelter? I've been at the dog shelter for about three years. And prior to that, I was still working in like animal welfare. I was over at the Humane Society prior to and for about two years prior to me coming to the dog warden's facility and becoming the dog warden, I was working with the previous dog warden, Dane Howard, who started the Rascal unit coming in and doing the spay-neuter program. During that time and prior to him coming on board, the previous warden had started it turning into a no-kill facility. So for about, I'd say for about nine years, it's been considered a no-kill facility. For quite some time, they didn't adopt out pit bulls at all. There was a ban in most of Richland County that didn't allow pit bulls. So they just, if they got pit bulls in, unless it was in a part of the county where pit bulls were allowed, the pit bulls did not leave the facility alive unless it was going to a rescue or back to the owner who could prove that they did not live in a part of the county where the dog was banned. When I worked with the Humane Society, I worked with city council to get that ban repealed when it was deemed unconstitutional. So we had that ban repealed. And so now pit bulls, obviously, BSL has been considered unconstitutional. Anybody can own, you know, any breed of dog that they choose. So it's made a lot of great strides. It's gone to the point where People can adopt the breed of their choosing. It's gone to no kill and it's gone to a mandatory spay neuter facility. So I think that we're making very good strides in catching up to where a animal facility should be in regards to what we're offering to the public, if, especially in kind of an animal control facility, because if you're working with a pet population and you're worried about overpopulation, if you're not spaying and neutering what you're sending out, you're just perpetuating the problem. We see that in some places that do not enact spay and neuter, you know, they adopt one big dog out and then get 10 puppies six months later. So they're exactly. not really helping the problem. They're right. making it worse. So do you think that repealing BSL has affected the number of behavioral problems or behavioral euthanations, or is it the same? It's just an individual dog you know, how the individual dogs. I've always been a firm believer that you should base a behavior based on that dog. There are some things that are inherent with all breeds, some behaviors, but every dog is different and you should base a behavior based on that individual dog. You can't across the board deem an entire breed of dog as vicious or dangerous right off the bat. That's just, that's unfair to everything because each one's an individual, just like each person's an individual. No, I don't think that it's dramatically affected any type of behavioral issues or behavioral euthanasia. So what, let's get back to then the concept as far as behavioral euthanasia, when people call in and say, you know, my dog is being aggressive and I can't have it anymore. How do you guys manage those calls? So usually all of those calls, the staff just automatically forward those to me. And I ask them if they've looked into any type of training, what they've done, have they spoken to their veterinarian? I recommend that they look into training, that they call, that they ask their veterinarian who they recommend for, you know, behavioral training, if they've tried any type of medication, if they've gone that route, if they've gone all of those routes and it's something that they have tried everything, I usually simply explain to them, 
if you can't keep this dog and you don't trust this dog in your home, I'm not going to trust this dog to rehome it to somebody else. And would you also trust putting this dog into somebody else's home? Because at this point, you are the one that knows this dog the best. And if you don't feel safe with this dog, is this dog safe to be out with anyone else? And I always, at that point, if somebody truly does not feel safe with this dog in their home, I always recommend that they should probably have it euthanized if that's how they honestly feel about the dog. And I tell them it's going to be very sad for you and you are going to have a lot of emotions to work through, but your dog simply goes to sleep and he goes to sleep with his family around him. And that's what he remembers. From us going to the shelter to, to work on the spay and neuters, I know that there are some dogs that take a while to come around and, you know, sometimes they were my staff is a little bit scared of some of the dogs and you guys have really great staff that mm -hmm. know how to handle these dogs. So what is the process that you guys go through when you get a dog that is perhaps being aggressive and you don't know if it is situational, if they need time, like how do you guys make the decision between working with an individual dog? or having to make the decision of euthanizing that dog and not putting them up for adoption? Because I do have a really great staff. If the majority of the staff is in agreement, uh, and anytime we've had to euthanize a dog, all the staff has been in agreement that the dog's not safe to be adopted out because we all will try and work with the dog. So if it's really scared, you know, we'll try different approaches with it. We'll take it out of its kennel once it's past isolation and take it outside and see if it's just the fact, is it a barrier aggression? Is it the fact that it's in the kennel, in the shelter with all these dogs? Is it, does it need to be in a different space, a little bit away from people and have time to come to you on its own? So we will try different approaches with the dog to see what it is exactly that is its trigger. And then it's a lot of times it's number one barrier aggression or it's just being in the shelter. And if we can get them outside of the shelter and they start to come around to us, once they've kind of broken that fall, then we can manage them inside the shelter. And once we see that, that breakthrough they behave better for us. And then we can explain those behaviors to the potential adopters and our volunteers take it from there because we have volunteers that come in every single day and work with them. So we kind of get them over that initial hurdle. And then we have senior volunteers that come in and work with them more intensely. So we're very fortunate that we have the volunteers that we do. Yeah, I mean, everybody there is just amazing and how well they work with the dogs, how patient they are with the dogs, and they know each dog, like what to expect. And they warn us about, you know, things that may trigger and that kind of stuff. Do you guys, so then you guys have kind of like a, like an interview type process with adopters when it's going to be a potentially difficult dog that needs a special home? Like how does that adoption process happen? Yes, we do. Staff will talk to them or I will talk to them. Or if it's one, if it's one that we're not real sure if it's a good fit, I will watch the interactions with the dog and the family. And there's been a few of them where I've been like, and the family wants to move ahead and I'll be like, I don't, this is not a good fit. I'm sorry. I'm not comfortable sending this dog home with you. I'm going to ask that you pick a different dog. So I'm just, we're not moving this adoption forward. We had a case not too long ago. It was a livestock guardian dog and they wanted to take it home with small children. And he had showed some behaviors that just were concerning to put him in a home with small children where he wouldn't even have an outlet to work some of his working behaviors. So I was like, this is not a good fit for me. I, or this dog, I'm not comfortable. And then we found somebody that had a like mini hobby farm that was like, I've researched this breed. I want this breed. So I was like, this is perfect. And this is why, you know, sometimes you just pass on one because the next one's what the actual fit is. Yeah. That's just putting the dog and the people for success. Rather yes. than putting somebody in concern that the dog's going to injure somebody or be returned or end up having to be euthanized because it wasn't the correct fit. And that's so, what I told him. I said, that's our goal is to set everybody up for success when we send them out of here. It's not just sending them out. We want to send them out so they stay 
out and you're happy in the dogs. This has been really informative as far as what, how you guys deal with it, because, you know, it's something that unfortunately has to be done sometimes. You guys work as much as possible to try to prevent it. But the bottom line is sometimes there are dogs that cannot be fixed. Correct. So they end up having to be euthanized. So do you have anything that you would like to add to that you want people to know about? What I always, um, the dogs that we see with the issues, a lot of them, it's not breed specific. What it is situational specific. It comes from people that don't socialize their dogs or from dogs that are tied up outside, unaltered animals. So the biggest thing is, and it comes from people, and unfortunately, it come, a lot of the owners are just not responsible owners, you know. But the biggest thing that I would advocate for is just know your dog, know its triggers, and, and manage your dog, your dog's biggest advocate and your dog's biggest safety net. You know, always make sure that you're setting your dog up to succeed and do whatever you need to do to protect your dog to make sure that it doesn't put itself in a situation where it could do something to make a bad, like I always tell my dog, make good life choices because they're dogs. They don't know, but yeah, no, behavioral euthanasia should not be a dirty word. Unfortunately, there are times when it is a necessary thing that needs to be done because dogs should enhance your life, not make it worse. Um, and people shouldn't feel bad about having to make that decision because some dogs are in misery in their own minds. And the only kind thing that you can do is let them go to rest. And it's important for rescues to be open about it. You would say yeah. like the fact that they have to do this so yeah. that people understand that it is yeah. necessary. It is. Shelters are stressful environments just in general. And especially right now when most shelters are over their capacity and it's a place where some dogs just can't handle it and it's miserable for them. And they don't know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. They're just stuck in that misery every single day. They don't understand time. They just know what they're in at that moment. And for me, I always look at the quality of life for that animal. If I can't give that animal a relief from that, do I want them to continue to live that way? And I, you know, I have to look at that. And if they're miserable, losing weight, spinning in their kennels, and I can't offer them relief from that, and at that point, that's not a quality of life for that. Well, thank you so very much for sharing your thoughts about this. It has been really informative. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, no, no problem. So next, we're going to be interviewing Amanda Wampler. She basically has had personal experience with dogs that unfortunately have required euthanasia for behavioral reasons. So I think that a perspective from an owner and foster is very important to let us understand how this affects the individuals that care for these dogs. So thank you, Amanda, for joining us. Well, first, thank you for doing this interview. Thank you for including me. It's a hard conversation, but thanks for all you do for animals in the rescue world and just, you know, trying to relieve the stigma around making really hard decisions like this. So thank you for taking the time to be so thoughtful in your approach. I really appreciate everything you do. Thank you. So um, I don't believe you can save them all. I've been in rescue for over 20 years. I started a nonprofit animal rescue group, Adopt Pet Rescue, many years ago. And as much as I would love to save them all with humans and with dogs and with everything, we just don't have the capacity to do that. But with animals in general, I think there's something called bottlenecking. So what I've learned through rescue is that unfortunately there's just not enough resources to save them all. So if you are trying to save the animals with the most issues or behavioral challenges, a lot of times you're losing those dogs who could go into homes very easily. I unfortunately don't believe that you can save them all. And I truly believe that you can bottleneck your resources through animal rescue groups, foster care shelters. If you're only focusing on trying to help the dogs with the most issues, I think you should try. Absolutely. Because I've in my life of fostering and working with rescues, there's many dogs that's just, you know, they're not comfortable, they're scared, and the aggression is just fear aggression, and that can be overcome sometimes. So I, I think having an educated staff is important so that you can identify those 
or educated volunteers, but I don't believe that you can save them all, even though I'd really like to, and I really try and spend lots of resources saving as many as I can personally. <laughs> now, I know that you have said that you have fostered lots and lots of animals. About how many animals would you say that you have fostered? You know, that is such a good question. My family, my husband, we are all animal lovers and have all fostered. I think my husband and I have fostered well over 50, and then I've probably fostered well over 100 in my life. However, let me stipulate that a lot of those are mamas with puppies. <laughs> Not a lot, but I have a handful of mamas with puppies. But I've shipped some dogs to my parents' house when they were living. They lived in the country. They fostered mamas with puppies. And then we have done a couple litters myself. Back in the day before I was married, my sister and I lived together. We fostered some mamas with puppies and several other dogs. And another stipulation is I generally have several dogs in my house at once. No more than four, but yeah, I usually have about, you know, two to four dogs in my house at a time. You know, it, over 20 years, 100 dogs really isn't that many. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and some of them have been foster fails, I imagine. Oh, or, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not me. Mostly my husband. It's yes. hard when they come in my house, particularly during COVID, because we tried fostering with many different organizations. There was just such a need. Yeah. And he fell in love with two lovely dogs and our original dog that we fostered together prior to getting married. So yes, foster fails a few. I have had one dog that I foster failed, but yes, That's actually pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because you become attached to them. You're a foster parent and parent is part of that word. So you fall in love with them, you take care of them and it is really hard to let them go. But it's great what you do because you let them go so that they can have a family so that then you can help another dog that is in the same situation yes. as opposed to kind of becoming a rescue hoarder. If, that is my preference sense. to just foster and then let them. I really enjoy getting them in a good place and seeing them in a happier home or a happy home. Sometimes I think it's a happier home because it might be a one-on-one -on -one situation, family with one dog, as opposed to here with multiple dogs. Yeah. But I love seeing them flourish at other homes. I think fostering is such an amazing thing. And you know what I also recommend to people who are looking for dogs to do a foster to adopt. There's so many great organizations who will let you do a foster to adopt to find the right dog for you and your family, which is just more sustainable, right? It just helps yeah. those dogs stay in the families longer. Right. Absolutely. Because I think part of the problem, you know, even with the topic that we're talking about behavioral euthanasia is that some dogs are set up to fail because they're not in the right situation. Like yeah. when somebody that lives in a small apartment gets a hurting dog and then they don't understand why their dog is tearing everything up or, you know, having separation anxiety, like we have to set dogs up for success. We need to yes. set the owners up for success. Yes. If not, we're going to end up in this issue of behavioral euthanasia. Now, right. with all the animals that you have fostered, you personally have had two dogs that unfortunately had to end up with euthanasias due to behavior problems, and they were kind of somewhat different circumstances. So how about you tell us about your first dog? Sure. So this is really hard to share. I'm happy to do it because I want to relieve the stigma of thinking I'm a bad person <laughs> because I've euthanized my dogs. It was definitely something, you know, that was one of the hardest decisions we've had to make. And we still, as a family, get very upset about both situations and can literally bring tears to my eyes even thinking about it, even though I feel like we were responsible in doing so. Just wanted to put that out there that it's it's not easy to talk about still. It's not fun. It's not comforting. I think a lot of people in my family, including my husband, just likes to, not to pretend it didn't happen, but it's just hard when you see the Facebook memories. You know, you love these animals so much even if they were just fosters, it's a very strange thing of how much love you can put into an animal. But the first dog was Zeus. He came from a pretty rough situation, a baby puppy with his mom. So we ended up fostering him because some of the baby puppies were passing for whatever reason. I don't really understand the story of where they came from. A friend of mine just asked me if I could help. And I said, sure. And, you know, once we got them, they didn't, none of them had died afterwards. So we just provided them nutritional care, provided the moms some nutritional care and some vet care to make sure that we had everything that they needed. And, you know, we had them as newborn puppies. So the experiences that they had, you know, prior to birth or when they were really young, I think were really scary, but they were still just weeks old. But other than that, we had raised them for the first six weeks of their life. And, you know, I didn't have any, these weren't my dogs. I was just helping somebody who you know, was in a domestic violence situation. My friend wasn't, but she was friends with the person who was. And they wanted all of the dogs back as soon as, you know, they were six weeks old and they had homes for them. We did convince her to let us keep one because my husband had fallen and let foster fail. <laughs> <laughs> and it was hard because you're raising them from little babies and they came from such a, you know, 
a unique situation. So when he, when we kept the one, we took him, Zeus, we have a big family. We have five kids and grandkids, so all different ages for Zeus to be exposed to. We took him to the kids' soccer games, track meets, you know, things outside. He got along with everybody. He would even play, you know, kids were attracted to him at those type of events and strange, not like strange as weird, but like kids that they didn't know would come up and play with them. We'd make sure that they had treats and interacted great with nice, you know, introductory meetings and everything was wonderful. But then it seemed, you know, as time went by and going to, we, you know, really believe in having a strong relationship with your veterinary care, which we're fortunate to do. And in taking, you know, Zeus to some vets, he had some special needs with eye surgery that he needed. We noticed that he was getting more and more aggressive and it didn't seem to be fear aggressive. It seemed to be more aggressive, aggressive, wanting to find things to attack, wanting to leave the yard to attack those type things. As time went on, you know, we realized we needed medication potentially, you know, we had a trainer come to our house to help us. And we tried to do some of those type tactics of what are the triggers? Can we do better to eliminate those triggers? Things like, you know, we used to call it side-eyed, but I guess it's called whale eye for dogs. You know, like they're looking at you from, that could be something that's a, you know, not a trigger, but like a notification, like, Hey, I'm not comfortable in this situation, which obviously Zeus didn't do to us at all because he really loved us and was so sweet. We, we could lay on top of him and he would lick our face. But if some, you know, new person was over, not even a stranger who'd been in the house several times, it just wasn't our core family. And he would jump on top of them and scare the crap out of them. But he wasn't biting at that point, but he would just be very aggressive. We, you know, have lots of kids in and out of the house, open the door, he would run out the front door and try to attack you know, whatever he could. So we had to be really careful about that. And then it progressed to attacking my other dog. That's a chihuahua mix. So she didn't really have the skill set to protect herself as she was the size of his head. And Zeus was a pit bull mix too. I don't know if that makes a difference. I mean, I'm not targeting pit bulls and saying pit bulls are bad, but you know, a chihuahua mix with a pit bull, you can right. see the difference there. It's stocky like a staff, you know, just real stocky like that. And I mean, who knows what he was really mixed with, but we did have his mom here fostering for a while. And she definitely was a really, you know, strong dog. You know, and talking to our vets and talking about medication, we realized our vet probably didn't have what we were comfortable with behavioral health wise, because we really wanted to implement not just drugs, but more steps that we could take more from our trainer, you know, more people who've been through a dog that had serious aggression. So from there, we went to OSU and we saw two different vets there. And Dr. Lilly was always the person at OSU that would help us, you know, behind whatever vet, but they helped put us on medication, adjust medications and helped look like with just training like you know this is this is the these are the tactics you can take these are the things that you can do and this was a long this was quite a long time ago so it's, it's hard to remember all of the details but it was months and months of you know doing the training exhausting the training changing the medicines you know every time there was an incident I would write a note in my phone and then you know at the end of the week I would kind of you know send those all over to the behavioral health doctor and get suggestions. Okay, what do we need to do? So there was mostly lots of adjusting of medications and then really locking down the house and separating dogs a lot. So really changing the lifestyle. It just got to the point with Zeus where he was so targeting my other dog, which my other dog is a really great dog and behaviorists like Alyssa thought, think my other dog is wonderful. They're like, oh, she's just such a great dog, but she doesn't, she's like a referee. We call her like, if she feels aggression starting, she like goes after it immediately. And my neighbor's dog, who is, who is my kids, it's a, also a pit bull, does not get along with other dogs. But when Michelle's in the room, we'll behave. If Michelle's not in the room, we'll go and bite another dog. And that actually happened. <laughs> they were living here because their place caught on fire. So they had to have Jazzy over here. And we usually kept a muzzle on her, but she got acclimated after a while. And yeah, so when Michelle was out of the room, she attacked one of my other dogs because Michelle was out of my room. So Michelle, you know, usually helps regulate dogs and helps us understand when they're becoming aggressive, but she won't back down. And so Zeus went after her once and, you know, we couldn't get his, her hit, you know, she still has scars. We couldn't get her head out of his mouth. And it was just the last draw for us where we, you know, sent Dr. Lilly an email saying, you know, what do we do? What are our choices here? Like, it's just getting worse and worse. Nothing's getting better. And that's where, you know, she's like, ultimately the decision is yours, but you really shouldn't pass on a problem. And I don't see it getting better. I see what you have to do is live two different lifestyles. You have to live 
with both of those dogs, but you have to have them in totally separate areas all of the time. And having so many people in and out of our house, including children, that's a responsibility we couldn't bear because maybe we could be responsible built to it. Maybe, maybe we couldn't though. Everybody makes mistakes. But if one of our kids were to do that and our other dog would die, I wouldn't be able to live with them thinking it's their fault, right? So that's when we made that decision. And as hard of a decision that was and how much, and I mean, let me just tell you, whew, our daughter just cried and was so angry at us, you know, and she's older. She, I believe she was like, I don't know, 17, 18, so angry at us for the, that decision because she loved him so much and it was so hard. It was, we know it was the right thing to do. We know it was the right thing to do for whoever potentially Zeus would have attacked, whether it would have been a small child, whether it would have been another animal, whether it would have been our animal in the house. It's something at such a young age and progressively getting so much worse. We knew we couldn't control it. And we knew that there was a high potential for something really bad to happen that we wouldn't be able to forgive ourselves for if it happened. And we felt it was the best thing for Zeus too, because as much as Zeus was happy with us and our family being in, inside with us when he wasn't interested in trying to get out to kill something that was walking by, he was living with that anxiety too. So taking him to the vet, taking him to other places. When we took him to OSU, we had to put a muzzle on, which would thank God he was easy to put a muzzle on because he was kind to us. That wasn't my other experience, but there were all kinds of things and all kinds of ways people had to act around him to get him to be calm and okay, which he still wasn't a hundred percent, but he was, because we were around professionals who were trained for it, he was better. So it was better for him too, because he was living less anxiety. I wish there was some type of meds or some type of other therapy we could have given him to help him through it. I feel as if we tried everything. We spent a lot of money, which again, I've said to you before, I think it's a privilege that we were able to do that. I totally understand that people can't do that. And we still ended up euthanizing him. And they say that, you know, they, that they're, this progression of aggressive can continue for two years, but it, you know, you're not going to really know until after two years how aggressive or not aggressive the dog's really going to be. But if it's progressing that it's continually bad and it's not getting better, it's probably just going to keep progressing and getting worse. So I think he was about a year when we ended up euthanizing him. But we did it in a wonderful way with Dr. Lily's office. Like it's this crazy thing that they did where my, I walked in front, my husband walked in back and we had him on a leash and somebody snuck out of the door and gave him a shot to make him sleepy, which he didn't even notice. It just startled him. And we put him in this room and he started getting sleepy and we fed him lots of hot dogs. It was such a peaceful way to do it too, that we could be really around him, hugging him, loving him and giving him really awful food that he loved. And it is, it's really great that you guys spent that time with him so that's the last thing that he sees right like there are some people that in your situation would have sent them to a shelter send them to a pound or just drop them off at the vet and left because they don't want to be involved yeah. in the whole process because like you said there's a bad stigma behind euthanasia and people feel guilty and realistically the kindest thing that we can do is be a part of the process and do that with them it's not it's not an easy decision, but I mean, we, it's all done as a family. Right. And, you know, the dog is part of our family. So we kind of have to be there for them. Yeah, um, that's totally true. I remember when I was at the dog pet rescue, we had a dog that was returned twice, adopted a third time and it was targeting children. So we had a behaviorist come out and they were like, this dog is broken. Like it is targeting children that walk by the name. Like, and it was a large breed dog. And I remember the family wanted, they wanted it euthanized, but they didn't want anything to do with it. So I remember meeting the dog at the vet and sitting there with it while it, they mm -hmm. did it and giving it hot dogs. And I had never met the dog. I just thought it was important that somebody sit there with this right. dog and love it. And again, it was an owner dog. It was, you know, at that point it wasn't our dog. And, you know, we had tried several times as an adoption agency. And I, I remember that's that I believe that's really the only dog that we had that I can remember that we had to behaviorally euthanize very fortunate it wasn't fun but it was I felt better being there yeah with the dog and helping it you know fall asleep eating delicious hot dogs or you know right. <laughs> something like that it's uh, never fun yeah so then how long after Zeus was it that you got Hayes oh gosh it wasn't actually I mean it was like three years probably not super long not long enough because <laughs> our yeah. brains were still very still are very sad um 
about it. But yeah, so during COVID, we were fostering through other shelters and organizations. We did Franklin County Animal Shelter and Columbus Humane. You know, shelters who weren't normally fostering were looking for people to take home their dogs at the beginning of COVID. And we took a dog that had some major medical issues and needed some major surgery, like major surgery done. Um, and when we met the dog and we were very sensitive about it going in, I remember like we wanted to meet the dog. We wanted to introduce that dog to our dogs <laughs> before we were taking it home because we were just still recovering from Zeus, even though it had been years, we were still recovering from that whole situation. And with our other dog, you know, she had been through a very traumatic situation with having her head and my other dog's right. mouth with still having scars. You know, we wanted to make sure everybody was okay with it. We had fostered little dogs and puppies, but no large breed dogs. But we're a bit apprehensive, frankly. We just were. So we, you know, he couldn't walk very well because of the surgery that he had. But he seemed really sweet. And because he wasn't super mobile, couldn't run fast or anything, we thought, okay, we can do this. This is going to be fine. And he really needed to be out of the shelter. And he really needed to be in a foster home. And I remember when we picked him up, I saw volunteers at the shelter saying, thank you for taking him. Like, they just wanted somebody to take him. He was such a special needs case. And we've dealt with so many animals who've had so many different types of surgeries. Eh. That's fine. And about you how know. old was he? Oh, he was like, like six months. Okay, so still puppy. Seven months. Ish. I mean, who knows though, right? right. A, yeah, yeah. he was found on the streets. So mm-hmm. like an owner was surrendering any of that. I don't recall. I don't believe they had any history on him. Yeah. So he was definitely younger under a year, but he was still like 50 pounds, probably 60 pounds. Mm-hmm. He was a, I think he was a large, like he looked larger. I can't remember his exact weight at this time. Uh, but not a small dog is my point. <laughs> Right. So with him, he had the surgery. We had him for probably like a week before he had the surgery. He had major surgery and he was just in so, we feel, I don't know any facts. I'm not a vet, but we feel like he was in so much pain after the surgery and on cage rest and the med, his, he just didn't react well to any of the medications and the medications seemed to make him really aggressive. So he would just cry at night. I remember my husband several times who has a bleeding heart would lay down, would go downstairs, open his crate and lay on the floor with him to sleep with him, to make him more comfortable. Well, there's lots of notes back and forth, like something's wrong. He's becoming more aggressive on this medication. He's not happy. You know, he, you know, was mean to the other dogs. He was getting really just kind of nippy with us. We had to be very careful, but it wasn't like he was still had so many stitches in both of his legs. He couldn't really, he was depending on us to like help pick him up, help take him out potty. So he couldn't really attack us at that point. But then as time progressed, just a few months, you know, and we were taking him to the vet every single week to have him look at him. And they noticed it too, that he was getting more aggressive, but he didn't really have any triggers for his aggression. His aggression would be like, I'm fine one minute. And then the next minute, I'm going to bite your face off, literally, to those he loved very much. I think he loved us very much. I felt like he did at times. So throughout that process, the same thing, you know, we kind of went to, well, first the animal shelter, you know, God love them. They were like, okay, you took him in for his last visit because we would drop him off and then they would see him when they could. And then they would call us to tell us to come pick him up. They're like, we're going to go ahead and put him on the adoption floor. And we're like, this dog is not adopt, in our opinion, you know, this dog, and we've fostered many dogs and been to behavioral health and, you know, been in rescue for a long time. So I feel like we have some experience. This dog is not perfectly adoptable. Like this takes a special person to adopt this dog. And this particular shelter didn't really, you know, probably narrow, like they were very open-minded about who they adopted to. They trusted that people would make the right decisions, which I appreciate, but we got very nervous about this dog getting in the wrong hands. So I was like, can we just have the dog? Can we have the dog? You know, maybe we'll adopt it out on the side to the right home if we can find one. At that point, I wasn't really thinking. I just knew that it would be a disaster for this dog to go in the wrong hands because they, you know, there's so much money spent on all the surgery and this dog had so much potential to be a great dog. I just wanted to make sure it went into the right hands and had the right resources put toward it, which again, we were privileged to be able to do. So we ended up adopting the dog from the shelter and seeing what we could do. We had a trainer come out at that point. She was like, I think he can be fine. I think you just need to do these things. These are what, these are the aggression issues. I see work on those, which we tried for a long time, at least two months, but just seeing the aggression get worse and worse, particularly toward our other dogs, which at one point it was so sad. Like we adopted this foster dog that we had and we fostered this other little dog thinking he needed somebody to play with. So we, and he bonded great with this little puppy that we got. That's like some type of. I don't know why your hair terrier mix. I have no idea, but like a 12 pound dog. 
had pictures of them like snuggling, sleeping together. We were like, okay, this is going to be good. He ended up turning on that dog and like trying to eat that dog every once in a while. So we ended up going back to OSU <laughs> and this time seeing Dr. Lily directly. Cause I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe we're in this place again. What are we doing wrong? What is going on? And, you know, we went through the whole process again, lots of medication changes with lot, a lot more medication changes and a lot heavier doses of medicine for the dog Hayes that we adopted because he had such adverse reactions to it. And, you know, I ended up taking him to your office when we ended up putting him down and Dr. Lily had, pers- cause she wouldn't be able to get him in for like another week or two. And we couldn't have him in our house knowing that this was the decision we made and having to be so careful and not being able to really love him because toward the end of his life, he really wasn't loving and he really just wanted to, I mean, he might be for a second, so you could pet him and love him and he would come up to you to get the love. And then literally he would just bite you out of nowhere. So that was hard for us to live with that. So I asked, you know, you and your team, if you would help us with it. And she prescribed this very interesting cocktail that he needed because he was so particular on his meds. So that was just another case with lots of details missing that basically says, you know, went to veterinary office, went to trainer, went to behavioral health and, you know, wasn't finding anything being, nothing was working. Everything was, he, the progression of aggression was getting worse, except for this again, was more non-triggered, non-fear, more, I just am very angry at life. Maybe yeah. a good way to say it. Yeah. And how supportive was OSU behavior when you went to them and said, you know, we are at the end of our rope? Like, were they judging or were they supportive? How did that interaction happen or go? I feel like everybody I was surrounded with, my vet office and particularly OSU Behavioral Health were extremely supportive. I mean, my vet office, I don't think was as, they didn't understand. They just knew they couldn't really see him, (laughs) but they didn't, they were like, there's just so many other options, which I get. But I kind of think that's a little bit of an ignorant view on a dog that was so aggressive. But Dr. Lily and her team, they almost, they didn't make the decision for me because they wouldn't do that. That's not Mm -hmm. appropriate and probably not in their playbook, right? But they absolutely said, you can, in both cases, you can either live a very different life and hope that no mistakes ever happen from anybody that's in and out of your house, or you can do probably the right thing for both of you and, you know, give a really, you've tried, you've given a really great life and give a really great goodbye and then know that nothing bad's going to happen in the future. And, you know, the one thing that everybody has always said for the most part is please don't pass on the problem, which sounds really negative, but like, please don't give somebody else the opportunity to get their face bit off or a child to get hurt or an animal to get killed, a pet particularly. So I really respected their decision and appreciated their support. Friends of mine, at work and personal who maybe don't believe in euthanasia, seeing the progression and knowing the progression still to this day, support me in those decisions whenever we talk about it. So the friend that introduced me to Hayes and introduced me to the situation to this day, she'll say things like you did everything you possibly could and more than anybody else would for those dogs and that dog. So I feel like I've been so lucky to be so supportive. Even people I know in rescue who I know don't believe in it, who've had experienced it more recently themselves have said like, I get it, which makes me feel so much better because I know they're not for, you know, behavioral euthanasia. And I think unless you're in that situation, you really, it's really hard to judge, you know, because I don't want to do it either. And God, you know, you know, so many humans who have mental health challenges and that's not what you're going to do to humans. Why are you doing that to animals? But honestly, I just don't feel like there's there for us. I didn't feel like there was a better choice. And if there is, please educate me on it. And if you're going to say training and medicine and everything else, know that I did all of that. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, you, your example is a perfect example of you kind of, you had, especially with zoos, as a dog that you had since he was a puppy. So you went through all the steps. Some people think, uh, well, we don't know, you know, we adopted it from a shelter or we got it from whatever situation and we don't know what could have happened. A dog can be raised in a perfect way with, every resource, every support, and then something can still go wrong in their brain that causes the aggression. And it does become a, an issue of safety. You can say, like with Zeus, again, he's okay with your family, but with kids, how many times does a kid leave the door cracked open because they don't realize it, or somebody knocks on the door and they just open it? I mean, and what happens if the dog starts to try to attack somebody 
and the child knows the dog, he's not going to hurt me and goes to grab the dog and then the dog redirects that aggression. I mean, there are so many variables that can happen. That happened too. Yeah. Yeah. That happened with my sister where Zeus went after my other dog and my sister broke it up and she got bit really bad. Yeah. She was totally fine with it which I wasn't, but she was like, no, it's my fault. I broke it up. I'm like, well, the other choice was the other dog to die. <laughs> right. No, exactly. I mean, there, there's a lot more than just that dog. It's how everybody and everyone is affected. So given your experiences, how apprehensive are you with other behavioral issues or aggression issues, potential aggression issues? Yeah. So I was the person all of my life that was never afraid of any dog. Like I drive, you know, to where I work downtown and I drive home sometimes like Ohio Avenue. And if I ever saw a dog, regardless of the type of dog on the side of the road, I pull over and I try to get that dog. I rescued actually two pit bulls when I was super young. That's what got me into rescue. Going to Columbus State Community College, walked out and there was two dogs and the police, they called the police or the security. And they were like, no, we can't touch these dogs. I popped them right in my car and took them home and fostered them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> never afraid of a dog ever in a bad way. I don't think that's healthy, by the way. <laughs> I wouldn't want my kids to do that, even though some of them yeah. are absolutely like that because they were raised around rescues. But now, you know, I found a dog in my backyard. My neighbor did. And she like knocked on my door like, hey, can you help me? Because they all know I you know, love animals. I couldn't put the collar. Like I had like one of those little slip collars because the dog didn't have a anything on to latch it to, latch the leash to, I started shaking. I couldn't, I would, and this dog was fine. I mean, I didn't know or not know. It wasn't like growling at me or baring teeth, but it wasn't like trying to get love from me either. I just started shaking. And I was like, I, and this lady's like, I'm just kind of afraid of dogs. This poor lady is the one who ended up putting this collar over it. Yeah. Um, so that we could rescue it. So right now I'm going through this thing where I'm just a little apprehensive of dogs. I hope I'm working on it. I'm hoping I can get better, but you know, we fostered some dogs in between that like bit us. And we were like, we just told the rescue not in between actually. Well, yeah, after Zeus and before Hayes, we fostered one dog, particularly I shouldn't be drama and say mini that was older and just had some medical issues. And we were trying to get out of the car once and it just attacked my husband and I really bad. But I think, you know, one, I went in to pick it up and get it out because it wasn't coming out. Cause I have like a, one of those SUVs that has like the pet area in the back. And I saw that it was going to bite my husband. And I think it was just in pain after the vet office, it was an older dog, but like between those three cases, I am like terrified of dogs right now. If I don't know them and I'm not comfortable with them, if I can tell that they're friendly, cause I work downtown and sometimes my colleagues and I go on walks and it seems inevitably that a dog, stray dog always runs up to me or us. <laughs> so it takes me a minute, but like I can go up and grab it and put it away. But I, yeah, I'm a little, I'm embarrassed to say I'm a little apprehensive right now. Yeah. Well, and it's not embarrassing. I mean, it's, it's very, it's a very real fear that you kind of develop, right? Like it's instinctive. We, our brain learns from past experiences. So your brain is now geared to protect yourself from a possible bite. And I think that's also kind of important for shelters and rescues that have dogs that are possibly aggressive to take a step back and think about, is this animal safe? to adopt it out because the last thing that we would want is for somebody that has never had a dog to have that be their first experience, go to a shelter, get this dog, love this dog. And then the dog turns around and bites them. And there goes their trust in dogs, not to mention the potential injuries or, you know, other problems that they could have, you know, it's a very difficult situation. It's a very difficult topic, but it's unfortunately something that sometimes have to be done again for the dog. And then for just the, overall physical and mental health of the community. So. Yeah, you know, fostering so many dogs though, my data set is, you know, really three bad incidences with dogs. You know, the one very short-term temporary foster dog that I ended up calling saying like, please, I'll take this dog anywhere. It's not gonna work for us, you know? And then Zeus and Hayes. So many of them of every type of mix, every type of size have been wonderful. I've even had little dogs that were extremely fear aggressive that like bit the crap on me when I tried to put my hand in the crate. But after warming up and doing all the things you're supposed to do, perfect dogs that wouldn't bite anybody. So I think for me, just making sure, and I'm doing this and I'm getting through it, making sure not all dogs are bad. Just do the right. responsible, right things that you're supposed to do when you approach a dog. You know, don't just run up to a dog. Teach your kids not to just run up to a dog. You know, put your hand down, let them smell you. Watch for behavioral things. Watch for their hair. Watch their tail. You know, so I think 
you know, I'm, I know I'm going to get over it and I know I'm getting over it. And I know there's just certain instances when I see a dog, that's not like immediately like happy to see me, or I'm not understanding it signals. I am more apprehensive for the most part. I think I, I want to make sure people aren't fearful of dogs out of all of the dogs I've fostered. And that's just the dogs I've fostered. That's not the dogs that I used to trim their nails for a donation to adopt pet rescue or help. I don't know if you remember bark park with Marsha, but like I was mm-hmm. one of the volunteers there, you know, I've never had an incident before, you know, and I've been around so many. So dogs are really good. I think most people are innately good. Some people would disagree with me on that, but I think just make sure you're educated and just don't run right into things and you're going to be safe. And if our shelters could just make sure our shelters and our foster care, if there is aggression, just be transparent about it. Just be really transparent about it. So somebody who has a little bit more savvy or time or energy or whatever it is can be the person who selects that dog. Don't hide it because that's never going to be good for anybody. Right. Because sometimes it's not like on purpose or maliciously. It's just not really realizing it. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much. I know that it's hard to talk about these experiences because they were really emotional for you and your family. So I really appreciate you taking the time and going over the things that you did and how it affected you and, um, and just helping let others know that it is okay. Sometimes it doesn't work out and there is support out there for when it doesn't go well. Is there anything else that you want to add? No, again, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this and thanks for your work on this. I think it's really important to get the word out there and help people, you know, understand that I don't think most people or shelters want to do this. They're just trying to find space for the animals. They can get to homes as soon as possible. And they're just ultimately trying to get the animals to homes as soon as possible. And, you know, maybe just give people an opportunity to listen to what they have to say and maybe just don't assume that was the decision that they wanted to make. And, you know, I think if you could take on those animals and you have that opportunity or if you have this gift to change those animals, that's great. That's just not the situation that me or my family was in at that time. And I need to feel comfortable with the decision we made. And I need to know that we tried the best that we could. And that's what works for us and our family. But I know every situation is different, but you do have to look at the bigger picture and what's best for not only you and your family, but people on the outside are who are innocent. And both of these cases, I feel like there could have been something traumatic to somebody that was out of our control. So I think that's really important to think about as well in these decisions. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. So, going into vet school, I honestly never thought of the need for euthanasia based on behavior problems. Like, I thought some dogs are okay, some bite, and that's just life. But over time, as I've seen the issues that severe aggression can bring to both people and animals, because, like it or not, most severely aggressive animals are not living happy. They're living in misery. I have over time grown to understand that there are worse things than euthanasia and that is living in a cage or getting shot or beaten for attacking another animal or a human. So for those people out there who like to judge people who have to make these hard decisions, if you're not going to step up and help, don't make it difficult for those who tried and couldn't. And for the shelters that hide your euthanasia numbers because you don't want to look bad, you're just making it harder on yourself and everyone else. And the lack of transparency makes you look deceitful to the public. To the people that work with these animals that are behavior cases, just thank you for your efforts and thank you for the difference you make. And just know that when you can't help, you're not a failure. You're just somebody who cared and who gave them a chance. So let's learn not to judge situations that we're not knowledgeable about because in the end it helps no one and it definitely doesn't help the dogs. Be more compassionate to the animals and to those that have to make the hard decisions We may not be in a place where we can save every dog, but with education and compassion, we may be able to help more and more each day. So thank you for listening and thank you for caring.